Welcome to the Commentary Magazine Daily Podcast. You are listening to this, or the official date of this podcast is Wednesday, August 17th, 2022, but we are in fact talking to you as we are talking to each other just after 10 p.m. Tuesday night, August 16th. So this is the Commentary Magazine Podcast After Dark. We're letting our hair down. We're... You know, we're in our smoking jackets and our we're got our pipes out. I may have already some, faded into some smooth jazz by now. There's some I was about to say I'm wearing a crown. I just want yeah, to be I'm there's wearing some a crown. Sonny Rollins, maybe or Stan Kenton, depending on you know, where you go with your smooth jazz. And uh and we're just gonna hang out here for a while. Uh, our schedules uh, were very um, conflicted uh, tomorrow, so this was the best we could do. Really, the first time I think this has ever happened. This is not our first commentary. No, it's dark. not. It is not. We did a couple during the pandemic, uh, at the at the at really at low water marks during the pandemic, in order to find some new life to breathe into our dead society, but. Uh, here we are, of course, I'm talking about executive editor Abe Greenwald. Hi, Abe. Hey, John. I say hey when it's commentary after dark. Hey. And uh, I'm going to do The Quiet Storm, which is the uh, which is the nighttime uh, FM DJ format uh, in Washington that was very popular in the 1980s when I was a young man, and say, and now we have media commentary columnist Christine Rosen. Hey, Christine. Hi, John. And, of course, associate editor and author of The Rise of the New Puritans, Noah Rothman. Hi, Noah. Hi, John. So, Noah, we got an email. You, We didn't get an email. I got an unsolicited direct message over Twitter from someone the other day who said, Stop being mean to Noah. You're obnoxious. <laughs> so I am resolved in this mellow condition that I, if I have been mean to you, I'm here to make amends. I'm not going to be obnoxious. I don't quite, it, it was, there was no specific reference made to the specific obnoxiousness that I had displayed toward you. But um, such was not, my intent and uh uh i will confess that i've had a hard uh, couple of weeks and a hard couple of months and uh, i am not as chill as maybe i could be so i apologize i apologize for that i mean traditionally and that kind of unsolicited message would get a, a rather direct response and well, i don't would merit I, it i don't um i don't exchange don't do exchanges with people on twitter uh i read twitter but i i have not participated in the twitterverse for three and a half years now i heartily recommend it to people i think actually reading it but not um not participating in it uh is actually the best of it it's one of the reasons that i got involved in twitter in the first place was that rich lowry the editor of national review told me I use Twitter the way we used to use the old AP newsfeed, Associated Press newsfeed, to keep up with headlines. 
because I kept saying to him, I don't understand what this medium is. And so I started following various reporters so I could get news early, which is what you got from the AP news feed if you subscribe to it as a news professional. And then I just got sucked in and I basically spent, you know, 10 years uh, being a crazy person on Twitter. And then I there was this moment where I, where I decided this was not good for my mental health. But that was and- always delightful. Uh, because it was such a contrast from how you are in in real life. There's a very acerbic personality there that doesn't actually exist. Um, You're referring, obviously, to some of the contentious arguments we've had in the wake of the raid on Mar-a-Lago, and I happen to check on our iTunes profile, and if you listen and you subscribe to iTunes, you should rate us. Only good, and if you feel like you shouldn't, you don't want to rate us good, don't rate us. That's Rich Lowry's admonition, and it works. Um, But they're really kind of split down the middle, but everybody has a very firm opinion about the the dynamic of the show <laughs> they have 100 percent, which is a, the, the just what happens on a daily show is that you get to you know you become a part of it yourself and it's a soap opera and and you reinvest it and that's good that's all good but um yes there there's there are camps forming i think the truth about where where we abe and i were talking about this today in the office yes we do have an office and yes some of us go into the office um in midtown manhattan where it's us nobody else in the building and then 25 people shouting smoke weed on the corner in front of our building um but that uh you know we i don't think that we on this show the four of us disagree about much a lot of this is simply emphasis and questions of tactics or what to expect or anything like that um i think we have maintained in a way i wouldn't say a unanimity of opinion but i think we 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 kind of share the same political the combination of political and moral values such that these disagreements largely go to you know strategy and not or you know emphasis so- or something and not to first things this is actually this is accurate and i will say someone asked me just today what is it like on the commentary magazine podcast because sometimes there's just all this bickering between john and noah and i and it gets me stressed because i just love you all but i really love john and noah and i it makes me anxious when they fight you know it's like watching watching you know your parents (laughs) fight and i laughed and i said what you have to understand is that for us it's like sitting around i mean almost every day sitting around, you know, a table with strong coffee and, you know, hashing things out with your friends and that you'll rib them, they'll rib you back, you'll push them on stuff because you know that they know that you respect them in general, um, or over a, you know, a beer or a glass of wine as we're doing tonight, um, after dark. The whole point is that even though we might not agree on every single specific and particularly with emphasis, and we each have our hobby horses, we push each other because we can, because, you know, at the end of the day, even when the, 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 small things we disagree on and there are some uh it, it's not worth ending a relationship over right <laughs> this is the i'm getting deep into the relationship right. talk well look yes there better not be any ending of a relationship here i got a, I got a mortgage <laughs> to take care of well, look uh, was it, compared yeah, to the political discussions that i have outside this podcast what disagreement takes place here is nothing you know is is this every 
political conversation argument in the country should be conducted the, the, as as viciously as as we have them here. I mean, see, th- this is an interesting thing because so you get into it with people. I have tended pretty much since my 30s, and I'm now 61. I don't argue in I don't argue with people at dinner parties or you know whatever uh i figure i have a pl- i have a soapbox i've always had a soapbox i've had a newspaper column or a magazine to edit or whatever i have an almost unlimited ability to express myself and that in social contexts i don't really have to mix it up the way other people do when that is the only place that they express themselves. So it might be interesting for people to know that I, if you know me or if you're, if you, if you talk to friends of mine, the people that I socialize with and all of that, um, they would not say that I was, that I was combative because I'm not, but I also don't ha- I have the luxury of not being combative, whereas I think somebody with my views who doesn't have the ability to access the public prints or TV airwaves or this podcast or something can't remain silent when views are being expressed in their company because silence is complicity. And of course, that can be in- that should be intolerable to people. So that's the attitude I start off these discussions with. <laughs> I, I don't need to engage with this person. Uh, this is, you know, what I do and that. But they don't really let me, uh, uh, you know, st- stand in that spot very long. Like, they've got to have it out, you know. That's one problem. The other thing is, it's not really discussions with strangers or acquaintances. The ones that get contentious are with people I'm, I'm pretty close to who um, are sort of, you know, taking 180 turns away from things we had shared. Is there another profession where let's say you're a plumber and go to a dinner party and say you're a plumber. And then the person you're talking to says, oh, I got to talk to you about flanges. Your industry has flanges 100% wrong. Like, I'm a weatherman. Oh, you know what? Millibars. You got to get rid of the millibars. This is the thing I've been talking. I've been talking about the millibars forever. They- everybody has an opinion on politics, and if you talk about it on- professionally, everybody wants to know your opinion, but then also share theirs. So they have a perfectly valid opinion as well. I, I think I think that that happens more often than not. Um, it's you know talking shop. You know, inside an industry can get very contentious. People can get very you know, committed to their way of doing things and be deeply offended at the notion that there may be a better way to do things or a cheaper way to do things or something like that. Um, and I, I just assume that's kind of the case. I mean, maybe I'm, you know, maybe I'm being, you know, foolish because I only know my own, you know, sort of hyper argumentative world. Um, and by the way, what, I, what I'm describing myself, uh, this is very much in, in contradiction to the way that I was raised. My, my uh, parents were unable, my father in particular was unable 
to let anything go, you know, in, 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 in social interactions. I mean, and, and there is a certain level of contempt, you might say, in the attitude that I've expressed, which is it's like, I don't need to talk to you. You know, I don't need to have it out with you. Like, who are you? You know, I, I, I have my own way of expressing myself. I don't want to have I don't want to have a fight with you because you're just not that important to me. And um, my, my father, you know, who is who is still alive at 92 and a half and would still be very happy to have an argument with you about anything. Uh, was much more egalitarian in that sense. To matter who he was with, including a taxi driver, like he could get into an argument with a taxi driver over politics if, 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 if it were necessary. So I, I will say it's not, it's not necessarily a good quality that you're not going to mix it up with people socially because there may be an at, there may be an element of snobbery, arrogance, sense of superiority. That means I I don't need to bother See, with you. I like mixing it up with my my friends who I disagree with politically. And I, I know it's like a cliche at this point on this podcast, but I do. I have a lot of liberal friends and there are a few who we have topics we no longer talk about because we would not be able to keep our friendship intact. if We discuss those hot button issues. But there was there for me, you know, getting to listen to someone who's really kind of dug in on their side and has like who's an intelligent and reads widely and thinks about this stuff and to hear their perspective immediately shows me the weaknesses in my own arguments often um, or reminds me of the things that I might have developed some nearsightedness about in, in my own arguments or just assume people understand. So I, I actually find it useful and but I've never taken it to the point where I, you know, I'm going well, you, you to live in Washington. Yeah, I mean, exactly. <laughs> I'm surrounded. Town sort of eats and breathes it. Yeah, it's yeah. hard. It would be hard to ignore. It's and everybody has their own little area of genuine expertise hmm. that they can actually enlighten you on. I, I take John's view that it's a exhausting, b more risk than reward, and c I don't get a cut of the action. <laughs> to add to Christine's point about uh, liberal friends, because I have. I have some liberal friends. I have some pretty far left friends and I have a whole lot of conservative friends. Um, these days I get more or I, I enjoy disagreeing or engaging with um, liberal friends more than conservative friends, because when I argue with my liberal friends, I know what this is. I know where I'm at. This is familiar ground. These are the 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 rules make sense. The frameworks that still apply and and matter. Um, when you get into it with, I guess, for lack of a better word, sort of the new right folks, um, I I kind of don't. I I dis, it's disorienting. I'm like, well, what what do you want? Well, what is it? What, what is the goal of this? What are you what are you talking about? Uh, you, you know, where, where, okay, where does this end up eventually? You know, and that's, that's the, um, and, and that, and that gets actually more frustrating than just saying, um, no, the state shouldn't pay for this. They shouldn't pay for that. You know, that's the sort of that, that's, right. that's familiar. Well, I mean, th there's an interesting thing there because I think there's a mutual sense on the part of, um, people like us and people that we know both, uh, who say become like very firm never Trumpers on the one hand or MAGA types on the other, that all three of us in different ways feel like each of us has been taken over 
by, you'll excuse the expression from Invasion of the Body Side, pod people. Like none of us can quite believe that the other has gone where the other has gone. And that's one of the reasons that you get people constantly trying to impugn the motives of people whose views have altered or changed where you're like, well, obviously they're doing that because, you know, they're getting the Pavlovian response of lots of retweets or, you know, as opposed to assuming that they genuinely believe what they're now arguing and that they've changed their mind or circumstances have changed their mind and their approach. And for us, I think with various friends of ours in both directions, there's a sense of dismay because these are people with whom you shared a common language, a common vocabulary, a common approach to the world. And I think we feel like we've kind of remained where we were and they've changed. They they acknowledge that they've changed, and the idea is we you know when change because you're sclerotic or you're living in the past or you're you're holding to verities that are no longer true because circumstances have altered themselves. We're in a massive we're in a war, and in war you have to change your strategy and your tactics. So that could be you know you're a never Trumper, so now you actually actively want the side that you used to work against, including ideologically, you want that side to win, to punish the side that you were on for its um, malfeasance. Or this is a war and you have to adopt the tactics of the people that you really loathe, the woke and all that, because uh, that's the only way they're going to learn. And uh, if you don't want to go in either direction, you're the, you ha- you know, you're not the one who's changed but the people who have changed are like, well, you haven't changed because you don't understand the need for the change or you're too cowardly to change or something, something like that. And it is, it's destabilizing. But again, I don't really understand. There's, there's in these relationships, in my case, with people with whom I was once very close, there has, I've had a couple of like actual breaks where I just no longer talk to somebody anymore. But for the most part, it's like, okay, I realize we've hit, we're at a point at which we don't want the same thing to happen. And so let's just talk about our kids or sports or what movies we saw or something like that, because no good is going to come of this and friendships are going to be ruptured, relationships are going to be ruptured. And what what good is that? Um, because I genuinely don't respect where they've gone and they generally don't genuinely don't respect where I've stayed, let's say. So, you know, if we leave that out, we're probably better off. Um, but that's a, that's a, that's in part a response to having seen, you know, my parents lose all their friends (laughs) and which was a very painful thing to see in which they've, you know which which remained a, a, a sore thing in their lives. Maybe it's the wine, but I'm trying to think of it in the spirit of generosity. I'm trying to find the elements of consistency between you know those who we think have <clears throat> dramatically altered their belief structure, political philosophy, first principles amid the upheavals of the last four or five years. And you know, this is probably a good enough jumping off point to, to get into the story of what's going to dominate the story. Today, tomorrow, as we record this, um, which is uh, Liz Cheney's dramatic primary loss, uh, resounding 
we don't know the final tally, but as of now, it's it's a 30 point margin. She she was destroyed. Um, and is it all you know, a grand pursuit of some sort of uh, uh, power or vengeance visited upon this this woman and, and just generally a desire to revise the history of January 6th? Maybe there's probably elements of that to all of this, but maybe it's just that here's an individual who is a, a pit bull, clearly, but is not your pit bull. She does not espouse your values. And this is a race to represent a constituency and was no longer representative uh, in terms of values. Now, what those values are is the subject of debate. Um, and there's probably some elements of them that are less savory than others. Uh, I certainly am of that mind. Uh, but nevertheless, there's nothing un-American about that. There's certainly nothing um, uh, that cuts against human nature about that. It's, it's perfectly predictable and defensible. Um, and most likely, uh, her replacement will have to find herself, find some way to find an equilibrium in the Republican Party that will soften her approach. She's by no means the most MAGA of candidates who've run this year, but she's she's fairly MAGA. Um, by contrast, you know, people like I haven't heard her burning bridges, but uh, as opposed to people like Carrie Lake, who seem to believe that her pathway to victory is to alienate and provoke as many people as possible, which I don't think will be successful. Um, but she, Harry Hagman is going to be in Congress next year, and she's going to have to navigate that as a as a very junior member. And that has a moderating effect. Who knows? So I think the story with Liz Cheney is a complicated one. Uh, because she's lost this primary because she has lost the what what she believes what she has done the way she has uh, comported herself and the things she has committed herself to since her election in 2020 clearly does not comport with what the voters of Wyoming want from their member of Congress and this is what representative democracy is about she has she staked her position it was as clear as any position could be she took herself before the voters in you know in in this republican primary who are effectively the voters in the general election and they said we're not happy with how you've represented us what you've done is not what we want now that's life and she can go to bed tonight confident that she stood up for her principles and that she did what she felt was necessary and this is a choice that you know it's the classic choice of all literature about politicians Phineas Finn any great work of literature that is about the choices that politicians have to make involves the question of whether or not you are going to sacrifice your standing your position your fame whatever it is because there's there is a line you you can't you can't you are so tempted to cross but in the end you you can't cross or if you cross it you cross it and then you live with the consequences of uh, of that and that's so that's it's rare that you have something as stark as this in Liz Cheney's case i would say that the sole issue and i admire her greatly and i always have and i like her personally and I, I, I think very highly of her, but her position, 
her position was not just that she felt this way. This is where it gets interesting and where her being a burr under the saddle of other people is something I can sort of understand. Again, maybe even more novelistically, let's say, or more in a in a in a in the kind of context of political fiction. She said, other people have to think the way I think. It is not enough that I am standing here saying Donald Trump is a threat. If you don't think that Donald Trump is a threat, there's something wrong with you. You are caving into him. You are giving into him. And she has all the reason in the world to advance that view since, as we talked about on the podcast we recorded this morning, which you would have heard yesterday if given this bizarre timeline we're on, you know, Kevin McCarthy did behave like an unscrupulous worm. He said Donald Trump was responsible. He said it. And then, you know, and then he didn't like the blowback and he didn't like what the polling was showing him. And he just, you know, twisted himself into a pretzel to be whatever he had to be. And that's not even representing his own district exact. That's more like representing his own political interest in wanting to be a leader in the House and to be on Trump's good side. But still, there is something you can understand people rearing at the assertion that if you don't agree with them, you are committing a moral error. You are, you are, you, you're a moral stain. There's a moral stain on you if you don't do what I did. And like, that's, Okay, go ahead. Yes, but there's but it's like siding with the the electors of Bristol against Burke. I mean, he <laughs> lost he lost the faith of a constituency and reminded them what the role of a representative was and that has captured the imagination of conservatives for 300 years. It does right. today to me. Well, again, the 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 Burke and the and the electors of Bristol is one approach which is you elect somebody because you want the you want them to exercise their their judgment in your stead that's you are picking them because you want their brain to be their your guide and then the other is no they're there to do what they want you to do on policy after policy and if you don't do it then they can kick you out but this goes back to the earlier point you were making, John, about in personal relationships about ends and means, right? Because each of us knows uh, more than one person who's decided that the the you know the means justify the end. You know, who who will now say all of the tactics that the other side that we've excoriated for decades are using? We need to adopt those, not embrace them, and and do this, you know loudly and you know regime change etc cetera, etc cetera, the kind of hyperbole actually is in service to an ideological shift that is not small c conservative it is the opposite of that it is radical in a way that that you know a lot of these folks who are espousing it used to criticize and i think effectively criticize but there is but in a way that that also is is true of cheney's whole experience right there was a that there was a way perhaps to approach her constituents in terms of her views and her service on the January 6th commission that maybe wasn't so moralizing. I mean, I, she might still have lost in this particular climate, but she didn't even try to speak. She, she struck me as someone who was running a national campaign, but in fact, she was in a race that was very local. So there was nothing local about most of her, her uh, public statements, right? It, it, it was a national moral 
crusade and right. good for her. She did it. That's what she wanted to do. Clearly she did it consistently. She did it with integrity um, and she lost because of it. And I'm, I'm of the view. I, it always strikes me as extremely elitist to look at what the American people vote when they go into the, into the polling place. And they, they say, I want this person, not that one. It's better to try to understand what motivates them and why they chose that person and why there wasn't an alternative than it is to just say they're so stupid. These these dumb people who, who voted for X, Y or Z um, understanding why they didn't didn't select her this time seems pretty straightforward. Uh, seeing where this takes the Republican Party in the future, though, is, is you know, complicated and, and perhaps a little bit depressing. You know, we're, I, I we're, sort of feel like uh when did just to link this part of the conversation to the first part about arguing with conservative friends and discussions um wh when after january 6th she came out and said this is a harsh show and we need to scrutinize what happened here and get to the bottom of it and so on and so forth that was sort of when a whole host of of people on the right really outed themselves um, in opposition to her. You know, um, uh, that was at least my experience. Uh, people that weren't um, necessarily sort of fully MAGA, uh, even even, you know, even people who who had at some point. Um, MAGA curious. You know. Yeah. But yeah. But people who had even ex expressed, you know, re regret and scorn about January 6th, um, her doing it sort of radicalized them in a way. Um, and I was I was very surprised that she ended up being that kind of figure at that point. But I think that that's partially what I'm what I'm referring to. I mean, I, I think I, I, I may have confused. I don't think that it was that she went to her voters and said, you have to think this way or you're a moral stain. She was really saying that to her fellow elected Republicans in the House and to the Republican superstructure in Washington that had surrendered itself to Trump. Um, well, no, and, it, in January 6th, specifically January yeah. 6th, she knew all of yeah. them to be afraid for their lives and repulsed. And then right. all of them changed their position. And that was fairly repulsive. And I would right. feel the exact same way. No, I would too. So then it gets down to how you, how you express yourself. And I guess the Christine question would be, was, would, was there another path for her um, and she is who she is. So I think she, there wasn't another path. She's very, um, she's very reminiscent of her mother. I hate to sort of play that game, but I know her mother. I've edited, I've edited articles by her mother. Lynn is a very tough cookie and a very self-confident person and, uh, takes no prisoners and doesn't abide fools. And, uh, Dick is a much more phlegmatic you know, uh, prudent uh, after his heart attack at 37 kind of calmed himself down and kept himself very much, you know, in check and in control. And Lynn is much more combative. And Liz kind of combines these two qualities because her manner is very, how would you describe, just sort of like, I wouldn't say flat, but I would say very measured. But her rhetoric isn't measured and her and her approach to things is not really measured. And I think that it was very easy for people to take offense at her. And then the question is, are they taking offense at her like Henry the Second 
and Thomas of Beckett. I mean, are they bas- were they basically saying, was MAGA, was Trump, were these people saying, who'll rid me of this meddlesome That's priest? That's really interesting that because she strikes such a prosecutorial demeanor that right. she has she's operates with utter dispassion rhetorically, but is firing on you know all barrels at you with all the rhetorical force she can muster, absent any apparent you know passion in the argument that that's grating <laughs> that's that's really frustrating well and that's uh, because so it's many... such a it's such a, a litany of facts yeah. that is produced in a way that can't be refuted even though you viscerally want to refute them well that's why so many of the news stories of the last like uh, 12 hours have been so so i mean kind of darkly humorous if you're liz cheney and any of her supporters but you know this like she must be feeling confident that she knew that they're, they're trying to divine her feelings right now because actually that's the one thing she does not in a very un-american way she is not emoting she is not putting all her feelings out there she's not you know instagram living her latest cooking dish like you know some people in in congress love to do to, to for the clicks but she's who she is i i agree with you john i think she is very much like her mother in in her combativeness but her her unwillingness to become passionate about it in some ways is very it it's would suit her constituents but i still i still don't know i don't think she could have thread the needle but i do feel like it was such a she became a symbol and sort of embraced being coming a symbol at a, at a very crucial moment for the republican party and the people who she was sent to congress to represent don't want to be symbols of anything they're they're the wyoming is such an interesting place like they they do not want that kind of symbol clearly yeah, she served up. She's she, you know, she sort of became. She kind of uh, uh, furnished people with a a point, a reference point. People on the right to say, okay, we can object, we can we can we can say bad things about January six. We can we can say that Trump was wrong. Say this, but okay, that's what we don't want to be. We're not going to be that. That that's where we're not going. Right. She's gone too far. Right. Was, I right. think unfortunately the reaction right. of some. Yes. But. I think that let I'm now going to go the other way and say I think that lets people off the hook too much because oh definitely definitely no but what 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 I, what I mean by that is I mean I've heard some people I know say oh, she went crazy or clearly and she loves the the media attention or something like that and I think it is much That's, more there's like, a lot of that that strange new respect if they just kept hating yeah. her right it might be in a better position. Right. But but that's where I get to the sort of the, you know, the uh, Henry II and Beckett, you know, you're not supposed to behave this way toward the king. You know, king wants you to be loyal and, you know, continue to go, you know, fooling around and whoring with the king. And if you do that, everything will be fine. But if he does something, you're like, well, I just can't go along with that. I'm sorry. That's really bad. And, you know, like effectively in the Beckett story, it's like, well, if I go along with you, you know, first of all, you're going to hell. And second of all, I'll go to hell and I don't want to go to hell. And I don't think other people here in medieval England should have to go to hell for you. And, you know, Henry II is enraged and furious because that's not what he thought Beckett was supposed to do for him. And I think she stood there and said, you know, this happened and happened on January 6th. And yes, as time gone, you don't want there to be this issue hanging over us, hanging over us Republicans. 
We want to move. You, you want us to move on. We should all move on. It didn't happen, or they're making too much of it, or you know, these poor people have been held without bail, or I don't know what, like all of that. And then, well, also just just to butt in and add, yeah. uh, from the perspective of the mainstream sort of elite opinion, she was this, you know, she was this principled person, this this, you know, this renegade from the Republican Party. But again, to go back to her voters, they didn't elect a renegade. That's not what they elected. So, right. So, and she played it. That is one area where I think she she took a stand and was like, "I'm not budging. I'm saying this is wrong." And 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 she believes it. That's great. I mean, I admire her principles. But I, as a representative of of the people right. of Wyoming, that's not what they right voted. For. But I, but I but I think I think the the general view of the people that you said, well, you know, Liz Cheney went too far, is can't we just not talk about like I can we not it was bad I just don't want to have to think about it anymore and you're making me think about it and all the you know these committee hearings are making me think about it and I don't like it and I you know I would prefer to think about how Trump did great things with the Abraham Accords and with taxes and regulation I hate Biden and the hunter's a crook and I want to think about that I want to think about the things that make me angry about the people and the policies that I don't like. And I don't want to have to think about these things that discomfort me about Trump. And you're making me think about them. And I hate you for it. You know, it's like the, you know, it's uh, stop making me think about this. You're so self-righteous. You know, my voters and, you know, including her caucus, it's like my voters don't like that you are making us talk about this. And so it's like an episode of intervention where she's the therapist. She's like, yeah. we've got to get to the bottom of why you keep yeah. using. Well, <laughs> and but they're that, all like, no, 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 we're fine. <laughs> that psychological profile concedes the inevitable victory of her position, because if they they did genuinely hold the belief that, yeah, she's right, but also she's obnoxious. She's still going to be right long after she stopped being obnoxious. And that is, there's the Burkean scenario. Right. Yeah. But it's a whole pattern, right? It's a, it's a genuine it's a genuine pattern in human relations that the person who, you know, it's Cassandra or whatever, the person who reminds you of the stuff that you would really rather not think about and you would rather forget rather than saying, "Well, why is it that I'm this makes me feel bad?" maybe they're saying something i need to hear it's more like get get them shut them up right but cassandra predicts the future so right. if she's cassandra then we have a whole other yeah i know <laughs> right. That's, right. that's exactly right now i want to talk to you about somebody who is not a cassandra but can help explain the president and give you a guide to the future and that's our friend david bonson and his economics course that you can take for free 30 lectures, an incredible syllabus, an entire history, tour d'horizon of the world, the ideas, the thinking, and the principles of economics. You go to Bonson.com, that's B-A-H-N-S-E-N.com, and you look there, you'll see a big B at the top left-hand corner. You just move your eye a little to the right, and you'll see the words economics. Of course, you click on that, you fill in your name, you fill in your email, and you are good to go for 30 hours of lectures and readings 
and uh, and thematic as well as historical guides to how economic theories have developed and how to understand our money, our the way we do business with each other, the way human interaction expresses itself as a function of the desire to better yourself, better your family, and make your mark upon the world. That's David Bonson's economics course at bonson.com, B-A-H-N-S-E-N.com. He's had an overwhelming response. People are loving this. You will love it too. Bonson.com and then click on economics course. And I need to talk to you about how when you're running a business, HR issues can kill you. Wrongful termination suits, minimum wage requirements, labor regulations, and HR manager salaries aren't cheap. An average of $70,000 a year. Bambi, spelled B-A-M-B-E-E, was created specifically for small business to give you a dedicated HR manager, craft HR policy, and maintain your compliance all for just $99 a month. With Bambi, you can change HR from your biggest liability to your biggest strength. Your dedicated HR manager is available by phone, email, or real-time chat. No hidden fees. Cancel anytime you didn't start your business because you wanted to spend time in HR compliance. Let Bambi help get your free HR audit today at Bambi.com slash commentary. That's B-A-M-B-E-E dot com slash commentary. What else? We don't have much else to talk about. The, I guess. There's two, two. But let me mention one thing because I okay, just thought sure. of this. Our issue is up. Our September issue is mostly up and available at commentary.org. And it is great. Uh, Robert Pondicio on the parents' revolt and the revolt against the parents' revolt uh, and how that's working out for the people who are revolting against the parents' revolt. We have Jim Meggs on how we got to go nuclear if we're having this energy crisis and they're going to come at you with talk about how nuclear waste is an impregnable issue and that is a fraud the nuclear waste issue is a fraud nuclear waste is not a problem and we can deal with it whatever it is very effectively uh we have our own christine rosen on christine tell us about your piece I got to write about how Republicans pounce all the time. One of my favorite subjects, how Republicans are always pouncing on the liberal media and, and how aggressive and awful they are. Basically, a, a little mini tour of this summer's uh, examples of that and how, in fact, it isn't Republicans pouncing. It's usually Republicans trying factually to set the record straight after having been completely and wildly and deliberately misinterpreted by the mainstream media. Right. Abe, hey, what else do you what else do you have to recommend to people? Uh Wilfred Riley and colleagues on assessing. Well, OK, it's been uh, two years, well, longer than that since the inception of Black Lives Matter. But have they been effective in their goal? Have they have they saved black lives? Uh, and and uh, he goes about answering the question by looking at data. Uh, Rick Marin on The Godfather, why it's the greatest. 50 years, 50 years on. That's right. Um, uh, the tragedy of having an eight, having a having a teenage son, you show the Godfather to, and he says it's a little slow, a little slow. And uh, Andrew Roberts on Boris Johnson, and Andrew Roberts on Boris Johnson, which is you know you get the best writer in England on the, on the you know that's a, that's something we're 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 pretty proud of. We got uh, 
We got all kinds of other stuff, a brilliant piece by Peter Berkowitz on a very perverse intellectual named Jacob Taubus. Uh, we got uh, Rob Long on uh, the desperate effort to find franchises and intellectual property um, and all kinds of other stuff. And we have a visit from Christine's dog, Odin. Earlier, we had a visit from my dog, Georgie. Uh, both of whom I think were making mischief, so Christine just had Super to pick squirrely, up. Yes, <laughs> yeah. So, uh, uh, so uh, that uh, is also wait. Dog. We shouldn't yeah. leave out uh, Mayor Solvechik on on um, uh, Walter, Walter Russell, Russell Mead's new book, The Ark that, of a Covenant. Yeah. Um, so that's our issue. It's there. Uh, we'll talk more about it in due course. Noah, you were about to say uh, <clears throat> we could either go to. Joe Biden signing ceremony for oh, yes. the uh, the aviator right? Which, as of this recording, has already been forgotten. I cannot imagine where in the annals of time it will reside tomorrow morning. Uh, or we can go to the forthcoming, apparently very interesting, we'll say, uh, counteroffensive in uh, the southern parts of Ukraine by the Ukrainian government, which is being preceded right now by some rather precise. Uh, counter um, intelligence operations inside Crimea, cutting rail lines, sabotaging electric uh, electricity outlets, and uh, you, you know, uh, cutting communications lines—the sort of stuff you do uh, to stop reinforcements from arriving at the front where forces are amassing around Kyrgyzstan. You know, it's funny because you just talking about this and I'm nodding. And I'm thinking, boy, whoo, you know, this is so. And then it reminded me, reminded me of the 2000 year old man when the 2000 year old somebody says, you know, says 2000 year old man says like the best invention of all time is saran wrap because, you know, you can you, you can put a little thing and make a little saran wrap or you can put 10 sandwiches and you can have a big saran wrap. And then Carl Reiner says, well, what about the hard lung machine? And he says, that was good. <laughs> that was a good. So it's like listening to you talk about Crimea. I'm like, that sounds that's really good. That's really good that they're doing that. They're staging. I mean, I don't know. I don't we have much to say um, about it except to say, boy, they're that, that's good. They're, you know. I, I that was my thinking, not that I have anything uh, deeper to say. I will say I mean, it was accompanied the, by yeah. Bri, not to interrupt, but it was accompanied by some very some of the most heartwarming images of the war from somebody who supports the Ukrainian position, because uh, there was this really spectacular uh, ship launch cruise missile strike on a, a air base inside Crimea a little less than a week ago now, uh, which seems to have taken out roughly five to eight combat aircraft on the ground. Um, and the images of it were of these, uh, you know, vacationers on the Black Sea coast. You know, well, this is where the Apparatchiks spent their summers and uh, vacationers just staring in awe as, you know, these pillars of smoke and explosions were just emanating from right off the right outside, uh, uh, just over the horizon. And now you've seen some more uh, somewhat less heartening images of average Crimeans trying to get out. Simferopol's train station is uh, is overrun, apparently, as they anticipate something big's coming. Uh, it's a very big deal. Uh, one of the thoughts that people had at the beginning of this conflict when everybody was so dour, including us, was, well, not only, you know, are they outmatched, they're outgunned, and the Russians have, you know, a history of, you know, slogging and uh, using just you know relentless 
ground force and all of that. But also, well, what were the Ukrainians going to do? Like, they're, they don't want to take Russian territory. Like, they just want to, if all you're going to do is defend, you just have to defend. And that's a horrible position to be in, in a war. You need to be able to bring, take it to the uh, aggressor. And then it's almost as though a light switch went on, at least in my head, but maybe the Ukrainians always, you know, Zelensky and people always had this in their back pocket. Well, you know, they have kind of, they think they have Crimea. They've been in Crimea for eight years. They think that's theirs. Let's go inflict some pain on Crimea. See how they like it in their annex in their supposedly annexed region that is actually legitimately part of Ukrainian territory and it's exciting in that respect because it was almost as though nobody really as i say at least i didn't but i mean i i read immense amounts about this and it sort of didn't really occur to anybody oh as recently as i want to say 6 to 8 weeks ago the the conventional wisdom among the graybeards and foreign policy was that Kyivs should consent to the sacrifice of Donbass and, and Crimea, some sort of a, some sort of a face-saving way to stop the bloodshed. Uh, yeah. Can I get le- less heartening news in the in the conflict uh, area was the passing without any reference whatsoever by the Biden administration of the one-year anniversary of the withdrawal from Afghanistan and the absolute abject. Uh, repression under which so many Afghanis now live, particularly women and children, and the poverty and the starvation and and the and the now now it can be said, oh, it was actually more like 800 Americans we left behind. You remember we were it almost became a joke. Uh, oh, it's just 100, 100, 100, that number of 100. And the the unwillingness to even acknowledge just just the devastation and the absolute bungling of that entire episode. It was only a year ago, which it, it seems much longer, but, uh, and, and the Afghani people's current situation, which is, which is quite dire. I will say that, you know, we went through this whole analog of what happened in Afghanistan to the American withdrawal from Vietnam in April of 1975, the, the chaos, the last helicopter pulling out, all the sort of the Saigonese at the fence of the, you know, desperately trying trying to throw their children over the fence so that they would be saved from the communist onslaught, all of that. But one heartening thing that has not, the dog that hasn't barked this week was one of the most notorious and sickening news stories ever published in the United States by a very decorated, very celebrated writer. And it's an interesting story, too, who wrote it. New York Times, April 30th, 1976, something like that. Indochina one year after America, colon, for most, comma, a better life, was the headline of this piece. This is a landmark piece in the history of, again, sort of was of neoconservatism, let's say, because it was the crystallization of this idea that they were going to be better off without us. We were not only were we not doing any good, we were doing harm. And even though the communists had taken over in Saigon and the Khmer Rouge had taken over in Cambodia and all of that, it was a better life because we were no longer there fomenting war. And then, of course, not only 
three years later would a million and a half Vietnamese escape on leaky boats across the South China Sea? But we would learn in part from Sidney Shanberg, the same person who wrote that piece about the killing fields in Cambodia and the two and a half million people who were killed by the Khmer Rouge in a year and a half in, you know, in the worst genocide since self-genocide. I mean, I don't even know what you call it because they were killing their own people, uh, you know, uh, since, since the Holocaust basically. And, um, and at least now, I don't think you have any, but there have been a couple of pieces of people saying, yeah, it wasn't so terrible. It wasn't so terrible. But you don't have the major Solons of foreign policy and things like that who are pretending that what happened last August was anything but at least a debacle at the time that it happened. Right. And it's interesting that Biden has no interest in taking a victory lap a year later. Right. And saying, I said I was going to pull us out of this forever war. And I did. And thank you know, you can now garland me with flowers because nobody wants to be no Democrat running for office Mm -hmm. wants anyone to be reminded of that. Those images. Yeah, it's not humility. It's it's terror. (laughs) Yeah. But there is still that sentiment abroad. There is still people who genuinely have held the conviction for so long that they can't get rid of it, that we should have just washed our hands of the place. Not that we should never have been there, not a not a Vietnam sentiment, but that we should have washed our hands of the place a decade before we did. Uh, and he could cater that to that sentiment if he wanted to. I remember in the immediate wake of uh, Ayman al-Zawahiri's neutralization, uh, I was kind of uh, frustrated and even sickened by uh, my fellow you know, right-wingers who didn't greet the news with a lot of enthusiasm, but they didn't do so for strategic reasons. They were just kind of muted about the accomplishments of a democratic president. I've since dampened, I lost all my enthusiasm for for that episode because it heralds a a really harrowing future uh, in which Al-Qaeda now has a new state, which they do. Uh, and a very well-heeled state, awash with American military equipment. And um, and they mean to project power abroad, according to Joe Biden's own intelligence officials. That's what they've testified before Congress, that this organization wants to reconstitute itself, will do so within the space of a year or two, and has the capacity to project power abroad within the space of uh, perhaps even Joe Biden's own presidency. So it's not exactly a heartwarming prospect. I'm fascinated by the fact that we, we, uh, as you mentioned in the the beginning of your list, that you know we had the signing ceremony for the bill that is really no longer nobody wants to call it the you know the Inflation Relief Act. Oh, but they still do, and they shouldn't. They, they all okay. called it the "Don't Say Gay" yeah. bill, all okay. of them to a I know. person, I know. and yet they still run with this anti-inflationary narrative that nobody can back up. Right, but but. What you're hearing from most people is we got it. We got the we got the climate change bill. It happened. Can you believe it? Like, I can't believe no one would ever have thought that this was going to happen. What an incredible accomplishment. Barack Obama tweets. It's a BFD, which is a reference to what Biden whispered in his ear upon the signing of the of Obamacare. Right. He said it's a big effing deal. He said, and so Obama it's a gave, Trojan horse. I I guess we can't right. say that, but right. Okay, but here, but here is what's striking about it. The thing that is 
going to have the most legs in this bill isn't in this bill. And the thing that happened this week that is some weird offshoot of it is something that is totally bipartisan in effect. And that is that 20 million people or 40 million people suffering from some form of hearing loss have been liberated from this oligopolistic requirement that you have to go to a doctor to get a hearing aid who then gets to charge you a gigantic fee for setting up the hearing aid and selling you ancillary equipment. And the reason, so enormous numbers of people are going to take account of this. This is going to cut the cost of hearing aids by several thousand dollars. There are tens of millions of people who don't get them because they can't afford them because they're not really covered by insurance. And um, this is something that is totally bipartisan. This is some, this is a, uh, this was something that Bernie Sanders and Elizabeth Warren effectively took to Trump in 2017, who directed, I think the FDA, I can't remember what agency to start down this path. And then it got slowed down by lobbying concerns and all this. And finally, it's now been affected. This is actually something that everybody was for and is now going to happen and will have an incredibly salutary effect. And what is it? It is deregulatory and it is anti-special interest and it is bipartisan. And let's see if Biden can claim credit for it. I mean, they may. Democrats may try to claim. If Republicans can't talk about hearing aids, come on, like the optics of that. They're not going to let him talk about hearing. Kamala can talk about hearing aids. Uh, there is the great video from today of him desperately trying to figure out how to give Joe Manchin the pen with which he signed. That was some serious jujitsu. Like they were really like there. There was a yeah. He was like, moment. "Where is he? I don't know. I don't know where." You know, it's like they. You know, I would very it much really... like to hear Kamala talk about the importance of hearing aids because hearing but... is important. Abe's when point. We hear it is people. a thing, yeah. Noah. It is a thing that we know. <laughs> when we hear to be people. Important. We hear, we hear you. I hear you. <laughs> but you know, Abe made this point through. It remains the point. This is a BFD, right? But can you believe it? Such successes Biden has had because he had nothing to do with it. You said it first. He was down for the count with COVID and Schumer and Manchin go in the back room and they figure out the deal. Biden is bupkis. Biden is nishkeferlich. There is no Biden. Biden, Biden gets credit because the Democrats finally stopped shooting themselves in the foot on something and got something done. But thankfully, it's because he wasn't there to say, no, 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 I think we need to sign you know, the we need to sign the bill authorizing the blah, blah, blah first or tie it to this and then everything would blow up. Yeah, he's the only person who's completely absent for his own comeback. <laughs> uh, dear God. Anyway, so thank you for joining us on this uh, peculiar commentary after dark podcast you will be listening to in the bright light of a hot summer day. Probably, I hope you have strong hope you've enjoyed it. I hope you've enjoyed <laughs> it as much as we've enjoyed talking to you. So for Abe, Christina, Noah, and John Podhoritz, keep the candle burning.